Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 288 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, we'd like to thank NOTA, powered by M&T Bank. NOTA is banking built for lawyers and provides smart, no-cost IOLTA account management. Visit trustnota.com legal to learn more. That's N-O-T-A, NOTA. Terms and conditions may apply. Next, we'd like to thank Colonial Surety Company Bonds and Insurance for bringing you this podcast. Whatever court bond you need, get a quote and purchase online at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. And we'd like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. And with so many new podcasts announcing their very first podcast these days, we occasionally like to mention that at 15 years and counting, this is the longest continuously running legal tech podcast out there. In our last episode, we looked at how COVID has changed the cybersecurity landscape and what we all can do to protect ourselves. In other words, a big topic most people don't like to talk about. In this episode, we kick off the summer season with a podcast tradition looking at summer reading lists and making recommendations for our, for our listeners. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we will indeed be talking about our summer reading plans. In our second segment, we're going to do another round of our new hot or not segment. Uh, and as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, what are we planning to read this summer, and uh, have our reading practices evolved over the past few years? A few years ago, we got into the habit of talking about our summer reading list, and it has become a nice summer break from talking about technology all the time, although some of our books do deal with technology. This year, in addition to discussing the books we plan on reading, we also wanted to talk a little bit about how our reading habits may or may not have changed as we get older as a result of the pandemic and for other reasons. Dennis, let's start with you. Have your reading practices changed over the last few years? You know, one of the things I like about this episode is is not just that we we talk about books, but we kind of talk about how how reading has changed over the over the years. And as I thought about it uh, for for this this uh, segment, I I realized that more than I'd ever imagined, I think in my life, that audiobooks are now such an important part of of my reading list. Uh, and that that frankly surprises me, and uh, it's an interesting development. Uh, it's shifted me away a bit from podcasts. You know, part of it is is as you get older, it's a little bit harder to read uh, paper books. But uh, that's that to me is is the big change, Tom. I don't know if, uh, about you. Have you seen much in the way of changes? You know, the real change for me has been in the type of books that, that I've been reading. Um, you know, the, the past couple of years, 
I've had my share of 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 some tragedies and some sad moments, and I I don't know if it's because of that that it, that this has changed, but I have found that I have really gone more t- towards reading fiction. And frank- frankly, the fiction that I read tends to be fantasy. And so there's probably a theme there that a psychiatrist or psychologist can read into that if they want to. But I I used to do, read a lot of history. I used to read a lot more nonfiction than I read. And now I just don't have the patience. I just don't enjoy it. But I enjoy getting into a good uh, fiction story and more often than not, fantasy or science fiction. That's the major change that I've had. I would say that's probably the biggest change for me over the past couple of years in how my reading habits uh, have evolved. Well, one of the other things that that I've noticed is I think the categories of what I consider books have have changed. So I think there are the paper books. There's definitely e-books. There's audio books. Um, there's what I call web captures and PDFs, the sort of white papers, long form content you get off the, the web. I, it's possible in some ways to me that longish videos are even a, a new book category. So my reading, I realize, doesn't consist of just the books that are on the shelves, but there are a, a number of other categories. Do you have the same sense, Tom? Well, I just want to say, Videos are videos, books are books. Videos are not books. That's not that's not a thing. So I'm just that's I I I will find that I watch a lot of videos too on YouTube these days, um, but I will never consider them to be reading books. It's hard for me to say that I'm reading a book when I listen to an audio book, but it's actually a book that I'm listening to. So that to me is is okay with with me. I, what I find is you know my approach has generally been the same over the past couple years is I try to read two to three books kind of simultaneously. I'm reading two fiction books at a time, one an ebook and one an audiobook. Depending on where I am and when I'm reading it, I'm listening to a book or I'm reading a book. Um, I, and then I've got a nonfiction book or some such thing that I'm reading along with it. Um, I would say, though, that if anything is, you know, I keep saying what I mentioned what had changed earlier. I think I'm reading more articles and newsletters these days for keeping current than I used to. Um, I think that I'm... I, 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 those tend to be more what I'm reading. I wouldn't call those books, even if some of them might be long form. Um, but I would say that that's the content that I read maybe more often than I read books uh, in, in the past. Um, I think it's, it's more shifting over to articles and newsletters. I would say that that's at least as much time as I spend on that than on the three books I read every week. You know, you kind of raised an interesting meta question, Tom. So if you're watching a a video of an author doing a reading from his or her book, that's just an an interview. A reading is an excerpt from a book. So yeah, that's a meta question, still not a book. So I also find that in a sense, I have this way of reading that where I will listen to interviews of an author where they talk about their books, or I might read summaries of, of business books. So th- those are also some, some different approaches I now um, have to reading. And 
And I think that lawyers should be looking ahead to uh, what I think will be the breakthrough in AI, where uh, artificial intelligence can read uh, the lengthy, boring material and summarize them for us. So that's one of the things I'm looking forward to. Also, I see some behavioral changes in myself, Tom, and I don't know whether you have the same things, but now I used to be like, if I started a book, then, you know, by God, I was going to finish it no matter how, how bad it was or how much I wasn't enjoying it. Now I'm comfortable not finishing books. I'm comfortable, especially with nonfiction, um, and I'd say especially business books, reading the introduction, reading the conclusion, and then making a decision whether I'm going to read the rest of it. I, the other behavioral change I noticed is I now have uh, prescription reading glasses, and that's enabled me to uh, uh, to have much more comfort uh, reading books. I'm actually reading more paper books uh, recently because of, of having the the reading glasses. So some of those things change. And for me, what's what's interesting about audiobooks is I can read a, a book in text a lot faster than I can listen to a book in, in audio. So I sometimes feel like it takes me longer to quote unquote read audiobooks than, than regular books. Oh no, I have a different experience and I, I've never really understand understood how freakishly fast you read books because you read so much faster than I do. But for me, the benefit of the audiobook is the ability to, re to listen to it at, at one and a half times. And that's usually what I do is I turn it up to that. Um, in fact, when I, when I have the, an audiobook at regular speed, it sounds weird to me now. It sounds like they're intentionally drawing things out that I, uh, it doesn't even feel realistic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm torn on the whole summaries of books, and here's why. I'm spending a lot of time highlighting in books and keeping things back um, that I send to Readwise. And so I've got notes and highlights and things like that being saved in my second brain. And a summary is not going to help with that. I, I'm going to miss out on some of the good content that the author is going to write from. So I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the summaries for that, for that main reason. I've never been one to finish, to keep reading a book, no matter how much I dislike it. I will usually tell within the first 50 pages if I'm going to read a book and it's gone if I don't like it within that, sometimes sooner than that. And good on you that you're just now getting reading glasses. I've had them for a long time. And so I, uh, I wish I, my eyes had lasted longer than they did, but, uh, I'm comfortable reading uh, books, but I tend to read electronic books. I don't. I can't remember the last time that I held a paper book in my hand to read it. Yeah, well, to be fair here, Tom, and to correct your impression, I got new prescription reading uh, glasses. Okay, all right. I was, I was I because was I, was, I was actually reading without glasses. Reading without glasses, which is okay, but actually the. The scope of your my vision is a lot broader now wearing the prescription reading glasses. The other thing I noticed is I get a lot of uh, the reading uh, from two sources. So one is Libby, which Libby, which a lot of people uh, have access to through their public library, which allows you to to basically find books, uh, put them on hold, read them electronically, both ebooks and audiobooks. And then I I use the service that we we match that we've talked about before uh, called. 
scribd or scribed, S-C-R-I-B-D, which I've heard people pronounce as scribd, but I can't stop myself from calling it scribed, uh, which has been described as a Netflix of books, which then allows you to to get access to all kinds of books uh, without buying them, just simply by paying a a monthly subscription fee. And that for me has, uh, I've sort of focused recently on, uh, as I look at those two services of two aspects of reading. So one is I call serendipity and the other is planned reading. So if I'm on Libby, it's like I'm at the library. And so whatever new book looks interesting to me, I might read it. So it's not planned. And then I also have planned reading, uh, uh, because I have, you know, a few shelves of, of unread books, and I just want to, to knock those down. So I don't know whether you're doing that time where you you have some just kind of, hey, I heard about this, or I saw a book that looks interesting versus the books that you plan to read. I have no serendipity in my philosophy of reading. I I keep a list of books. I counted uh, for the purpose of this podcast to see kind of what's on my pending list of books. Um, and it's about 100 books right now on that list. Uh, so it's quite big. So doing things for serendipity's sake would just take me away from that broader broader uh, purpose that I have. Um, no, it's all planned for me. But I, I want to actually skip down just a little bit in your outline because I'm curious here. You have a point in your in your outline for this segment about how do we support authors. And so I want to challenge you on that because I would say that the main way that I support authors is I buy their books. I buy their I buy their audiobooks. I buy their ebooks. Now granted they may not make a ton of money on it, but they're making more money than if you get them through a library service or through a subscription service like Scribd. So I'm curious about you why you wanted to talk about the how do we support authors because it feels like that you could be supporting them more by actually buying their books. Yeah, so I, I raised that question because I, I think that comes into play. And so you have many people who, who do like to read and have used public libraries in the past who don't want to pay a lot for for new books, especially if they're taking a chance on whether the books will be good or not. Uh, a lot of people feel that the book market for most authors really kind of collapsed in the in the last year or so. Uh, in many cases, there's a great article I saw, which maybe I can find. We can put into the show notes showing how few authors really can make a living off of uh, writing books. So I think that as we it's like music, everything else, all of the arts, we need to think about how we consume these things. And I'm not saying that I have any answers because I would like to pay the least that I can. But I do think we need to think about how we support authors. And sometimes that's going to be things like you pay to go to an event, like a like a book reading when a book is, is released, or you pay extra to have uh, a paperback copy autographed, or, or you do some other things like that, where you're getting them some kind of uh, revenue that might be different than, than royalties, because because uh, you don't want to pay uh, that amount for a book, or you just don't want to have a bunch of books in your in your house. 
So I don't know whether that's a full answer, Tom, but it's just something I've started to think more and more about. And since we're writing a book and it's, you know, we would love to have like all our listeners buy the book and then we would get rich off the royalties. But, I, you know, frankly, that's not likely to happen. No, you're right. And I think that there are probably, like you say, better ways to do it. And I'd like to find some of those other ways, but I've unfortunately am still kind of stuck on the buy a book and support them that way method. So now onto the controversial part of the segment, which is I'm doing something new this summer, which is I looked at these books uh, that I have on the shelves and they're, they're paper books and I have these new reading glasses and I'm like, you know, I've had these books for a long time and I keep saying I'm going to read them and I never get around to doing it. And so how can I make myself do that? And I could do something where I said, hey, if I haven't read these books by the end of the summer or the end of the year, I'm just getting rid of them because I'm never gonna, going to read them. And uh, I wasn't, you know, willing to make that kind of commitment. But I said, what if I, you know, because I'm teaching classes and we have a syllabus uh, in a class. So what if I take those books and I divide them uh, into topics and I create a, a reading syllabus for the summer? So this week I'm going to read these couple of books uh, on this topic, and then uh, by the end of the summer, uh, I divide them up, and I should be able to get through uh, these books on the shelf right beside me. And uh, and I thought that might be a good way. I mean, it's an experiment. I it's as likely to uh, fail as it is succeed. But uh, I thought it was an interesting experiment to try. And you've hinted before we started recording time that maybe you're not buying this approach. But I'm, I'm curious to what your reactions to that syllabus approach is. Well, I mean, I think that as an idea and as a method of clearing your books out, I think having a theme and a topic is not a bad one. Um, I, I probably couldn't do that because I would need more variety. I think I would get restless for something else sooner than, uh, than, than depending on how many books I had on a particular topic. But I think that when you introduce this as a subject of our segment, it sort of made me wonder when we went back to looking at this and I started to think about what the notion of the summer reading list is in the first place. And to me, the summer reading list, if I think about it, it's the reading list that when I was on summer vacation in school, it was the list of books that my teachers gave me to read. Or and, and so I think that my only pushback against kind of this whole notion is, is that I would guess that the vast majority of our readers don't have the luxury of putting together a syllabus and putting together a this week, my topic is this, and I'm going to read five books this week. And next week, my topic is this, and I'm going to read three books next week. And I think that the the whole notion of the summer reading list is probably a more foreign or alien idea for people who aren't somewhere related to education, who get time off during the summer to be able to read things, um, or our students or otherwise, and that's that uh, the majority of us, like me, only has maybe five or six hours a week to read a book at most, and uh, so it's harder to put a, a list together and, and stick to a discipline of a syllabus when you, um, when you don't have that much time. So first of all, I'm going to Go ahead and advocate right now that uh, all our listeners get three months off each year during the summer. Hey, that they I'm can all do for that. Whatever they, 
whoever they want. And I also think you raise an interesting point, Tom, because I do think that this this summer reading list, the notion is this is stuff that I will read on vacation or because things are slower during the summer or I might be traveling more, uh, those those kinds of things. And, and that has changed. Uh, definitely that was not the case last year. Be a little different this year. But let's go to uh, some recommendations. Uh, Tom, do you want to... Do you want to go first? You mean like go back and forth? Is that what you're thinking? No, I'm thinking that we just kind of blaze through them. And then uh, since we don't know each other's list, we'll s- I'll see whether I have to edit mine because you've uh, you've taken something I have. I'm almost positive that nothing on my list is on yours. Maybe one book, maybe. So I, the way that I divided up the list of the, the recommendations that I have are topics that I'm interested in reading about um, for one reason or the other. So first one, the one that comes closest to my technology book of the summer, and to be honest, I'm probably almost a third of the way through it right now, so it'll be done pretty soon, and that is A World Without Email by Cal Newport. Cal Newport has done a bunch of books on deep work and uh, about digital minimalism. Um, His new book is on A World Without Email. You know, part of my job is information governance, so email is a big part of that. Um, I am very interested in his arguments. He makes a lot of very good arguments about why email is a bad thing, but um, I'm not sure I agree with all of his uh, methods to solve uh, the problem about email. Um, the one other area that I'm interested in is um, I'm living with a relative now who, as a result of declining age, uh, memory is getting worse. It's a natural function. It's not it's not dementia or anything. It's just a natural function of the memory getting bad. And so building a better brain to me is a, is interesting. So I'm, there's two books that are interesting me at this point right now. Actually, um, the doctor from CNN has a well-regarded book out right now called Keep Sharp, How to Build a Better Brain at any age. That's on my list. And then the other one is by Lisa Genova, uh, Genova, I guess is her name. Um, she's had a couple of her books uh, become movies. Um, I think, I forget what it was called, Forgetting Alice, I think, or Remembering Alice. I don't remember what that was called. But this is called Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Um, and so that's that, those are the two books I'm, I'm looking at for, for building a better brain. I am still interested in learning more about bias, uh, anti-racism, those types of issues. And so I'm looking at two books right now. One is called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do by Jennifer Eberhardt. And then You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake, How Biases Distort Decision-Making and What You Can Do to Fight Them by Olivier Siboney, I guess is how you pronounce it. And then the last set of books, since we're going to talk, since I'm going to talk about fiction, I'm going to mention a trilogy, which gets both science fiction and technology all in the same thing. And it's called The Salvation Sequence. Um, it started in 2018. The last book was in 2020, last last year, by Peter Hamilton. Their Salvation, Salvation Lost, The Saints of Salvation is the final book. It has a ton of speculation in it with that, all the ways that technology is going to make our lives better and totally screw us up uh, in the future. Um, but it's about uh, essentially an alien invasion of Earth and what the human race does to do it. It's as good a science fiction as you can get. It's incredibly enthralling. I finished the second book, Salvation Lost, so I can't wait to read The Saints of Salvation. That's my major guilty pleasure for fiction this summer. All right, that was all of mine. Those were my main recommendations. Dennis, what about you? Did I do we any overlap? 
unfortunately, no. But or maybe fortunately for our listeners, there there was there was none. So one of the things that I like to suggest and is one of my uh, I don't know whether it's my tricks, but it's one of the things I do is I sometimes just focus on one author or one topic. And so I always recommend that to people. And so I've sort of read the whole set of works by a number of uh, detective novelists over the, the last few years. I don't really have that on my agenda this this summer. So what I decided for my list was to to basically recommend books that I've finished this year already, because um, I think it's it's good to to actually recommend things to people rather uh, as well as saying here's some things I'm I'm going to read. Before I jump into that, there is one that I'm looking forward to that will start soon because I'm I'll be teaching a class on cybersecurity and and data protection in the fall, so I want to learn more about that. And so I have a book called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, uh, and I love the title, but it's a, a book about the cyber arms race, um, so I'll be reading that. But I like Tom, I divide it into a couple categories. And so two on kind of current, what I'll call current events. Um, so one is called The Billion Dollar Whale by Tom Wright, and it's this this incredible story of of corruption and uh, you know uh, all, all this sort of sovereign wealth funds and just crazy uh, wild stuff that's totally entertaining and probably a cautionary tale or two in there for you and another one called the data detective by Tim Harford which is a great introduction to how to interpret data and how to understand what it is that you're being told in news stories and um, totally worthwhile. On the fiction side, um, there are just two books that really, I read at the beginning of the year that really stuck with me. Uh, one is called the, the Parable of the Sower and one is called The Parable of the Talents uh, by Octavia Butler and uh, just excellent excellent stuff. They're, they're written as a set of memos or, or letters, uh, but it's kind of science fiction of the near future, uh, which is one of my favorite genre, genres, and Octavia Butler is highly, highly thought of. A uh, couple of biographies. I Came as a, as a Shadow uh, by uh, Georgetown basketball coach uh, John Thompson, uh, which I was at uh, I was at Georgetown Law School when uh, John Thompson and Patrick Ewing were there. So it was a, a great book for me, but um, really insightful book in, in many ways. And uh, another one called The Price of Peace, which is about John Maynard Keynes uh, by a guy named Zachary Carter. Uh, Another way of, of thinking about uh, the economy, the uh, Great Depression, and how we're responding to COVID right now. And then three books that if you just want to make you think um, in completely new, different ways. Uh, one is called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander. He's an architect. Uh, and this is sort of his summary of how to think about how we build houses and towns. Uh, another one called Technology Revolutions and Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez. Uh, great way to think about patterns of technology and uh, capital development. And then probably my favorite book of the year uh, so far is called Four Lost Cities by Anna Louise Newitz. 
And uh, that's about four ancient cities that just kind of faded away and no longer exist. And her visits to those and the archaeology around those and her trying to, to restore the stories of those cities and how they gradually disappeared in the lessons from those cities that we have now. Uh, so that one's great, Four Lost Cities, uh, which includes uh, one of the lost cities, Cahokia, which was across the river from St. Louis, where I lived for, for quite a few years. So that's what I have, Tom, and uh, that's that should be a good list for our, our listeners and probably a good note to end up on. I think it is. I guess my only my only tip is um, obviously our reading tastes aren't for everybody. If there's something that you don't like, uh, I'm still a big fan. Um, I know Den- I haven't been able to convince Dennis to come join me on Goodreads, but uh, I tend to follow reviews and ratings on Goodreads. I follow the the wisdom of the crowd, and I basically have decided that I don't read a book unless it's rated over 4.0 on Goodreads. Um, but I do like the recommendation. So if you're looking for a good book. Um, I, th- I still think Goodreads is a good place to go. Dennis, any final tips before we get out of here? No, I mean, I, I, I do recommend it. People who, you know, support your public library because uh, they've been through some tough times. And, and Libby is just one of those services that uh, really show how the libraries are kind of uh, trying to modernize and to, to reach out to the community in really useful ways. So a lot of people don't know of this service, uh, but I think once you, once you experiment, I think it's something you'll, you'll find that you really enjoy. All right. And so before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Wish you could get a quote and purchase an appeal, trustee, estate, or any other court or fiduciary bond quickly online? Colonial Surety Company has every bond you need and is a direct insurer that's U.S. Treasury listed, licensed in all 50 states and territories, and rated A excellent by AM Best. So you can be confident it's a trusted resource. Get started at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. You went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnota.com legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And it's time for a new segment we call Hot or Not. We pick something people are talking about and argue whether we think it is hot or not. We might agree, but odds are that we won't. And we always want your feedback on this segment. Let's get started. My wife and I have been watching a lot of British detective shows, and I sometimes think that should be a topic for this podcast, but I don't think Tom will let me do that. Our favorite one lately is called Line of Duty. One thing that we've noticed on these shows is that CCTV 
is everywhere in English uh, TV shows. And it's actually a surprise on a show when something uh, is not captured on CCTV. So, Tom, hot or not, universal CCTV coming to the U.S. What's amazed me so much is watch, with all of those British detective shows, and, and I'm, a, I'm a fan of the British spy shows, but with as much CCTV that there is in Britain, you'd think that there would be less crime and less murders and less international intrigue, but according to all these shows, it's just rampant there. In fact, it's worse there than it is anywhere else if you believe what the shows are like. But So, I'm, not, I'm all over the place on this. I will say for now it is not hot is what I is what I'm going to say. I find it very interesting that Europe which is much more privacy minded than we are is pretty much all in on video surveillance. I mean they become that way. Now I think part of it has to do with prevention of terrorism. They've been more of a terrorism target than the United States has been. Um, I think that to a certain extent CCTV has gone a long way to help prevent terrorist attacks from occurring, and I think that they're willing to have that surveillance if it prevents bombs from going off. I, I certainly would, too, if that were. I think that would make it more likely here. Um, you know, we haven't had what I would consider to be that kind of defining moment um, that would cause people to all of a sudden be willing. But but I will say, let's, let's think about some examples. Red light cameras, a form of CCTV, a form of, a form of surveillance. They've not been popular. People don't pay their tickets. The people who speed don't like them. Surprise. You know, our, our ring and other video doorbells have created a whole network of surveillance video, but there's all kinds of protest when it found out that police departments were collecting videos from home homeowners. Um, there is some argument that putting surveillance in the hands of millions of Americans is diluting some kind of police oversight. So that is... People are finding that problematic. Um, you know, when you think about surveillance video and you combine it with facial recognition, that's been leading to some wrongful arrests because not because the technology is bad, but because the people using it aren't following the correct procedure. Um, and and I think that that we we're seeing some cities passing laws against facial recognition software, which is not really related to surveillance. It's kind of a side topic, but I think that the two subjects get conflated. You know, you wouldn't be using facial recognition software unless you already had surveillance footage of me and I don't want that I don't want you using that facial recognition software so I think that makes people also opposed to surveillance um, I think that it has been increasing it's going to increase I tend to think and we were mentioning this before we we started recording um, you seem to think that it's going to be right in our faces the cameras are there I actually think it's going to be more insidious and it's going to be more behind the scenes there will be cameras coming in that will just show up we might notice them ultimately but we might not notice when they show up there's not going to be an announcement oh by the way we're putting cameras all over the place I think they're going to slowly show up and and we're going to become more of a CCTV state but I don't think it's going to be for a while so I think that we're a ways off from hot. All right, there's my piece. Dennis, do you agree or disagree? I think it's going to be very not hot uh, because we, uh, for a number of reasons, but, but I think that what's appealing in the British shows is that um, there is a sense of deterrence, right? So if you know that you're going to, you're potentially on camera and people can track you and they can track your car around and stuff, then um, 
then maybe you won't do bad things or it's easier to catch people. Although, as you say, it it is uh, one of the funny parts of British detective shows, especially the shows are set in uh, in small towns. The smaller the town, the greater the murder rate. So there is that that element. But but as you go through the history of of CCTV-like activities in the U.S., I mean, you look at those those red light uh, cameras. People hated those. I mean, like you know, like they got taken down. And it's almost like we want to preserve our right to lie about, uh, you know, what happened at that at that traffic light. That it really the light was really green when we went when we went in there. And uh, no matter, it doesn't matter what the video says. And so I, I think that. In in the U.S., there is that difficulty that we would like to uh, either we don't want to see what actually happened or we don't want anybody else to see or we're afraid it's going to be misinterpreted. And, and almost everywhere you look, people object. You know, we have police who do, who have the body cams and they turn them off or they mysteriously don't work. You have uh, these other things where there's, you know, there's supposed to be a camera, but they're not really recording all of these things. And people are concerned about their virtual assistant device listening in on everything they do, but they might have some some camera at their door. I mean, it's just we're all over the place in the U.S., so I don't think we're likely to go to to that kind of CCTV where you I if I leave my apartment I start walking down the street to to the store the somebody can pick up me walking the whole route with the time stamp on it I don't think we're going to get to that point um, just because of our 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 nature but it is an interesting thing where you know the trade-offs. It's 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 one of those those great things about privacy, as you said, Tom. There's in Europe, you would think it would go the other way than it is in the U.S. And there's more cameras there in the U.S. You think it might be more okay, but I think we're you know most people are going to be more and more opposed to that. So kind of fascinating uh, take on a simple technology and uh, what are what the reality Reactions of humans and cultures are to those. So now it's time for our parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I'm going to use my parting shot uh, to give a friendly reminder on how to protect yourself when you have been the victim of some kind of online fraud. Um, at some point in time, whether it was the Office of Personal Management or the Equifax hack or another hack that I happened to be involved in, my social security number was stolen. And I learned a uh, consequence of that over the past couple of weeks when I discovered that uh, someone had used my social security number to file an unemployment claim on my behalf in the state of Texas um, uh, to try and collect some unemployment benefits. Um, uh, If you follow the news, you'll know that uh, fake unemployment claims have been rampant over during the, the pandemic over this time. So not terribly surprising, but um, I wasn't com- entirely sure of all the steps to take. Here are the steps that I took. I think they're good steps to take. First of all, um, you should um, call the 
unemployment entity that you have in your state and make a report. There should be a place for you to make a report that someone has used your information um, in a fraudulent manner. Make that report first. I recommend making a police report, even though nothing will come from it. If you ever have to do anything about it, um, then I think that's a a good idea. I would go uh, to identitytheft.gov, make a report there. So they've got a record that you made a report of it. I would go to all three credit uh, bureaus and do a credit freeze, um, even if it's temporary, because you might want to use it to buy to you know to go get some credit somewhere. I've put a credit freeze on all of my credit reports, and I've gotten a fraud alert from one of them just in case something try somebody tries to do something. Um, and then finally, the one thing to do that I recommend is is that somebody may very well try to file a tax return with your unemployment with their unemployment benefits in your name. I go to I went to the IRS, and they are now using a a personal pin that you can enter when you file your tax return. I don't believe it works if you file it by paper, um, so that may not fix that, but it will work if you file electronically. They will ask you for that pin before you file it. Um, so those are the steps that I've taken. It's a lot of steps, um, but I feel relatively comfortable that I've protected myself, at least right now. Um, I hate that I have to do it, but that's sort of the price of security these days if somebody gets a hold of something as important as your social security number. Dennis. Tom, you should turn that checklist into an online app and for people uh, to to go through that process. That'd be Here's really helpful. So I have two things. One is very quick. Um, I have the new Apple TV 4K, which arrived uh, recently and uh, thoroughly recommend it, uh, especially if you have an older Apple TV and are thinking about getting a new one or I would say that's the main marketer. If you don't have a device like that, and you're in the Apple world, um, I think it's I think it's great. The uh, setup was amazingly simple and largely automated. And for those of of us who've had Apple TVs in the past, the weak link has always been the remote. And I think the new remote has solved uh, many of the the issues with the the older remotes. So it's worth it for that. The second one I just want to say real, really quickly is we talked about virtual reality and law practice in, uh, in a past episode. And uh, through the Michigan State uh, Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation, we did a virtual reality in, in law practice webinar that's now available for replay on the, uh, the center's website in a section called Video Resources. And it's a, it's a half-day, three-hour presentation with lots of cool speakers uh, and uh, and demos and other things about virtual reality and the practice of law. And uh, uh, the link will be in the show notes, uh, but uh, highly re- recommended. It. it turned out really well. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous shows along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, remember you can always reach out to us on LinkedIn or leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Bio Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us at Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. 
Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.